All right, David. What is up? How's it going? Pretty good, man. I uh, I have some news. Oh, yeah? I am about to do something I haven't done in a very long time. Mm, say more. I am about to buy a movie. Ooh, like a DVD? Oh, no. God, no. <laughs> <laughs> or a VHS? I mean, I would buy the DVD if I wanted to put it in the microwave like you do. Uh, but do I, do I, I used to be very obsessed. When I was in college, I used to go to discount uh, CD and movie stores uh-huh. kind of as like a, a weekend pastime. You know, I'd go to like a half price books and see what was available for less than five bucks or go to that like massive bin at the Walmart and uh-huh. take the movies. But ever since, you know, joining the Jesuits and ever since everything went digital, I've been buying things less and less. And I haven't bought a single movie really uh, in over probably 10 years. Mm. Um, I've rented movies, but I haven't bought anything. And I think I might make the plunge, take the plunge Ooh. and actually rent my and buy my first digital movie. I have a guess on what that's going to be. Can you guess? Ooh, I've got two guesses. The first one is going to be a good guess, but I don't think it's the real one. Okay. And the other one is a bad guess, but will probably no, be the I think right it's, one? No, I think <laughs> it's the right one and a very good guess as well. Oh, okay. What's the one that's probably not right? Titanic. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> nice. Nicely done. I I would certainly have purchased it, but no, no, it's not that one. <laughs> yeah, for back, back background information here, find my Twitter feed and you'll see the story. Uh, I suspect that you are looking to purchase Into the Spider-Verse. I am going to buy, that is very correct. You know me very well. I'm going to buy Into the Spider-Verse uh, pretty much as soon as we're done recording. I think I'm going to buy it. <laughs> nice. Um, I actually thought yeah. about it too. It's so good. Like, it's so good. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, okay. So, I want to say two things about it really quick. One, I I saw it three times in theaters. We reviewed it here. I still think about that movie a lot. And I listen to the soundtrack a bunch. And I just really like it. Um, but also, and I don't usually do this, Jonathan. So, forgive me for this indulgence. <laughs> but I don't often like thinking in terms of, like, race or, like, general like social justice categories about myself Uh but there's something true about this movie of like miles morales is half puerto rican half black and there's something about having the dynamic there of him being a superhero and his mom speaks spanish yeah like some of that really touches at my heartstrings yeah man uh that is important to me and so i don't i like i'm not when i was a kid maybe i did more of the like looking up to those kinds of heroes that looked a lot more like me Uh um but now i don't feel that as much but i think it's one of the reasons i really kind of gravitate towards this movie is that it's like oh my gosh like i understand what his mom is saying yeah his mom is speaking in spanish and i don't know anyway it's kind of (laughs) no i don't think that's to be minimized i think that's a very real thing and the beauty of it and this is why i think this movie does it so well is that miles morales spider-man is his own spider-man like he's not replacing peter parker or he's not you know doing this or that or the other Right. Like, we're not trying to pretend that there's no white Spider-Man anymore. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, he's yeah. His, he is his, even though he has the same name, he is his own Spider-Man. Right. Kind of right. like and the Flash, a- Bear, uh, Wally West, Barry Allen. They're both the Flash, but right, they're both right. their own Flash. Yeah. And I think that's one of the great things about that movie is that it does allow, like you were saying, for everyone to be their own character. Yeah. You know, they share the same uh, costume and the same title. Um, whereas you see all these other versions where... You just have retconning happening all the time. Yeah. Um, like Nick Fury is a good example. So Nick Fury in the movie world has always been Samuel L. Jackson, mm-hmm. you know, a black guy playing Nick Fury. Well, and that's not what, always in the movies. In the David movies, Hasselhoff played Nick Fury. <laughs> Who did? David Hasselhoff. In what? The guy from Baywatch. Yeah. Oh, well, I know who uh, he is. <laughs> what movie was I, that? I did grow up watching Baywatch. <laughs> what movie was that? I can't even remember. It was pretty bad. He was Nick Fury in something? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, interesting. Well, anyway, in the comic books, he was a white guy. So there's yeah. definitely like just changing the character that happens. Yeah. Um, it and wasn't, I, and this... Was it Marvel Unlimited is when he became a black guy? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it was Marvel Unlimited. Um, anyway, long story short, this isn't an episode about comic books. But I just wanted to tell you <laughs> that I was I was going to do the unthinkable and yeah. and make that make that purchase. Hey, you know, I'm all for it. I've been, you know, I've been purchasing some movies here and there i've got mm-hmm. bvs mm-hmm. man of steel oh uh watchman oh that's right you have a zach schneider thing going on 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think those are the only three that I have. But I, I say, am considering Spider-Verse. I'm right there yeah. with you. There's something about uh, these movies, like buying them digitally just sort of feels more permanent than buying a DVD just because we're on the move so much. Um, yeah. And I feel like I want to buy the movies that I want to go back to often. Yeah. Um, like it's strange because buying a movie is usually not that much more expensive than renting a movie nowadays. <laughs> like yeah. renting a movie off iTunes is like $6 or something. Yeah. yeah. Um, buying it's like 10 Yeah. And I don't know why I don't just buy these movies, but... It's like it feels like a, too much of a commitment. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's always the thing that I love about it is that they're literally always with you. All you have to do is either mirror your device onto an Apple TV or sign in, mm-hmm. and you've got mm-hmm. it there on literally anywhere, on demand, on literally on demand. Yeah. <laughs> well, good. So let's hurry up and finish this episode so that I can go buy me <laughs> some Spider Verse. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> Well, speaking of purchasing movies, I just wanted to briefly touch on our conversation from last time about minimalism. Oh, sure. Have you thought any more about that? Um, I have thought a little bit more about it. I um, was talking to a friend, a similar uh, kind of relationship, um, someone else that I have in my life that's also very techie and very interested in digital stuff. He and I had a long conversation over the phone uh, recently, and we were talking about it, and I found myself coming down pretty hard (laughs) on... (laughs) Uh, I don't remember if last week's episode I came down pretty strongly against the digital minimalism stuff. Uh-huh. Um, like I'm sympathetic to it, but I also found myself when I talked to my friend Chris, I was like, I was finding myself having a hard time granting the the assumptions of the whole thing. Uh, and the reason I say that is because I came to the conclusion that I think maybe maybe I just don't have a problem. <laughs> maybe <laughs> maybe I don't have a problem. Maybe. Like maybe I don't understand the urgency because I don't actually have a problem. Yeah, it's the rest um, of the world that's crazy. Yeah, well, okay. <laughs> well, fine. If I have a problem, I'm sure you will be the first to tell me. Uh, probably. No, I think yeah. that's a good a good way to look at it. You know, because I really appreciated a lot of the things that they were saying and a lot of the problems that they were diagnosing, mm-hmm. and frankly, a lot of the solutions to the things that they were diagnosing. Uh-huh. to those problems. I just really didn't agree with the practice. Like and I th- and I w- the more I was thinking about it, the more I remembered the book uh Ready Player 1. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh and I don't know if we should still offer spoiler alerts for something for a book this old and now a movie that this is old. But right. in the book at least the conclusions that they came to at the end, you know, after having experienced all of that was a natural decision to be in the program less yeah yeah yeah. the movie made it a little bit more forceful like now we're mandating that nobody can play on these days blah 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 blah. okay whatever oh Uh, sure i remember that but in the book at least i thought that that was really really insightful because you get to a certain point hopefully either through hitting rock bottom which i think there they kind of did or through practice where you just kind of naturally come to the decision to use these things less and less, mm-hmm. um, which is different from saying, I will never use this again, which I kind of feel like is what their conclusions were. Right, right. Like you're breaking free from, from this so that you never go back to Twitter or to Reddit right. or whatever. It's or like, you, well, only ever, you, you only ever use them as tools. Yeah, you know, and- like, okay, I get where you're coming from with that, but I just don't think that that is a reality. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. these are just a part of our lives now mm-hmm, and we mm-hmm. need, and we need to learn how to use them well instead of them using us, first of all. Right, right. But just the option of abandoning wholesale is, I think, I think that's a bad move. Sure, sure. You know, I do. Yeah, I agree with that. And it's something that, you know, I've touched on before is that it's about, it's not about, uh, you know, just figuring out when I can dip into that world and then flee as quickly as possible. But it's about integration. Like, how are these things integrated best into my life? Now, I will say I do feel a little hypocritical because um, Lent is starting soon. And Uh I think think I might have to make some cuts on my digital presence. Mm -hmm. I know know that you get very defensive about this. (laughs) And... And I'm yeah. I'm ready. I'm ready. I think I'm ready for your pushback. <laughs> um, but I think I want to share with you what I what I decided to do. Yeah, definitely. Um, 
I so Lent is starting next week, Ash Wednesday, uh, 2019. Uh, for those listening in the future, <laughs> and I have decided that it'll be important for me uh, to eliminate two things. Um, so maybe some background. I have just found that I I sit very antsy in my room and kind of like sit in neutral. Like if you know if if the transmission in my in my brain was on neutral and I just kind of sit there and rev my engine and I I know I should read and get ahead or do more stuff and I just kind of sit there and rev my engine and I often just waste a lot of time uh, on YouTube and Reddit in particular. Yeah. Um, and so I don't feel like I should wholesale eliminate my presence online, like Twitter and Instagram, I am fine with those. Those don't really attract me and I don't waste a lot of time on there. Um, and I use them and I use them effectively. But I find in particular Reddit and YouTube are two things that I could probably dedicate the time there to something more constructive. And so I have a book that I think you were saying that you wanted to read it with me, um, a book that I want to read during Lent that I thought, you know, when I sit in my room and I think about just going on YouTube and watching Colbert uh, from the night before or watching... Um, you know, Bon Appetit videos on how to make cake. Instead of mm -hmm. doing that, uh, you know, reading from a book that I am trying to read intentionally for for Lent. Yeah. Um, what do you think about that? I so I, I think that's okay. Um, I mean, you know, my hang up on this is when people just decide to remove themselves from society for all of Lent, which is basically what you're doing when you give up all social social media. I mean, to an extreme. Okay, granted. But pe we're social media creatures these days. Anyway, so I think I think your moderation is is spot on. You know, one of the things that I've done recently, I've even mentioned on on here that I've limited my Reddit use on on kind of a kind of a fast. I'm dipping my toes back into the water these days to look for funny funny memes to send you and some of our friends. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> And that's okay, I think, you know, and that's precisely why, that's precisely why we fast so that we can develop better habits, not so that I can just give it up for a month and then jump all the way back in. Right. So like, I want to allow the impulse to watch YouTube to, I want to try and aim that towards reading a yeah. book, a particular book and not yeah. just generally like, I want to read more. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think that's a great thing to do instead of just saying, I want to read more. Because then I'll read nothing to say, oh, no, I'm going to read this book. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, this is my Lenten book. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I did a, I did something recently. What'd you do? So, you know, maybe you know, I think you know, that I, a while back, actually, put the um, one hour time limit on Reddit on my phone. Yes. Yes. I recently did that to YouTube. Oh, no. Yeah. I saw I saw the stats one week. <laughs> it was really <laughs> disturbing how much time I spent on YouTube. You want to share? You want to share with no, me? What? I do not. But I will. <laughs> I will say though, in my defense, uh, <laughs> and this doesn't make it right. Okay, this doesn't make it right. But I use YouTube in more ways than just watching funny cat videos. Yeah, funny uh, dog videos. Dog funny. videos. <laughs> kids falling over. Yes. Yes. Uh no, I use I use YouTube for a lot of educational reasons, for a lot of art stuff, a lot yeah, of cooking stuff, and a lot of different things like that. Um So and that's part of I think why my overusage is so justifiable, because I do use it for some justifiable things, I think. Uh mm -hmm. but then the other things creep in right. regularly. So you set a limit to an hour? Yeah, which is hard. Well, and so this is the funny thing. At the beginning, I kept going over. Um, but now I actively think to myself, is this worth using up my time? My hour? Hmm. And a lot of the times it's not, which means I'll end the day and not come close to reaching my hour limit. Oh, interesting. Huh. That's good. Are you going to continue this through Lent? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Good. Good. Um, what are you? Uh, what are you going to do for Lent then? So, I shared this with you um, a little bit. I'm considering upping my fasting game. Okay. From what to what? So I've already 
committed to, I think both of us do this, no meat Fridays. Right. I've been toying with intermittent fasting just in in general for the last, oh, month or so. Um, well, <laughs> and I'm, I like wondering, okay. I'm wondering if this is about Lent or if this is about getting your ordination body on point. <laughs> no, it's not about that. It's not about that, I promise. <laughs> I've given up on that. <laughs> I, I didn't lose any weight doing intermittent fasting. Oh, okay. Uh, okay. So I'm giving up on that. This is a spiritual practice. Oh, good. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> when disciplining so, the body doesn't work, discipline the soul. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Uh, so I am looking just to, and it's not even about being more strict with the fast. It's about being more regular. Hmm. Like this is a almost a weekly thing that I'm now having to to manage. Um, and I think that that level of inconvenience for me is gonna is gonna be good. 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 So what does intermittent fasting mean to you? Does that mean you don't eat breakfast or something? Yeah, so I try to um I don't eat until about two o'clock oh. in the afternoon. <laughs> oh god. And then stop eating or just make sure I don't snack in the evenings, basically. So you eat, you only eat like between two and seven? Yeah. Well, good on you, man. Now, I'm going to challenge you here. How are you going to make this spiritual and not just physical? Uh, well, I, I'm hoping that these are, um, these are going to, these inconveniences are going to be that reminder to pray. Pray okay. more. Well, and I think that's why <laughs> these fasting rules were put in place in the first place. Fair enough. But remember what you pray. said, remember what you just said five minutes ago. Yeah. You know, if you just say, I want to read more, you won't read. So, <laughs> well, that's what I'm you... doing. Yeah. Specific things like, I will not eat on this day. I won't no, eat no, no, meat yeah, on yeah, this yeah. day. No, what I mean is, what I meant is, if you just say, I want to pray more, uh-huh. well, why don't you give yourself as a suggestion? <laughs> I'm not your spiritual director, but <laughs> as a suggestion, why don't you say, like, on those days that you do intermittent fasting, what's your go to prayer thing when you feel the pain, yeah. the hunger? Yeah. yeah you know, yeah. like, it's like, when I feel hungry, the reminder is to pray, but the prayer that I go to as my yeah. as my default is a decade of the rosary, and that's your thing. Yeah, yeah, I like that. I'll have to figure that out. Good. I'll get, I'll get Good. back to you on that. So, do you have anything else that you're going to do for Lent? I have one more. Um. Well, I do want to read this book with you. Yes. Should we uh, share what the book is? Uh. Yeah. So I was recently writing uh, a big term paper uh, for my theology degree. And I was surprised in the writing process that I started remembering things that I read in Pope Benedict's Jesus of Nazareth series mm-hmm. um, that I read years ago when they first came out. And I thought to myself, you know, I never actually read the one about Holy Week. Mm-hmm. I only read the one about the infancy narratives and the one about uh, the public ministry. Yeah. So I thought, you know, for years I've been trying to read the volume on Holy Week um, during Lent, and I've never been able to do it. And I thought, okay, I'm going to do it, and I'm going to ask for help. So I think I've recruited you into this uh, into this practice. Yeah, I'm excited. Yeah, I think it'll be good. Jesus of Nazareth, Holy Week, from the entrance into Jerusalem to the resurrection, if anyone wants to join. Yeah, 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 that'll be cool. I also had a recent um, realization that I'd been pulling from from Ratzinger's theology without remembering that that's where I got all this stuff from, mm-hmm. and I don't even remember exactly what it was. I was preparing for some comps question questions with uh with a classmate and going on about you know love or something right and then uh, Ratzinger just pipes pops into your head yeah so i have <laughs> one more i have one more practice that i'm going to do tell me so i've been noticing um i've been noticing that i i wake up really early and Gross. i usually go to bed i usually go to bed at a reasonable hour um and i think I think I get a lot of work done during the day. Hmm. Um, I think I do, but I don't have any evidence to that. Um, like I have, I have my like semester checklist of assignments and they all get done. But I, I've been finding more and more that by the time I get to the afternoon, I look back. I, well, I don't look back. I just <laughs> stop and wonder. It's like, what have I done today? Like I've been having this this frustration recently of like, I don't know what I did today. Hmm. <laughs> and I know I did a lot of stuff. Um, but I don't know what it was. Um, and then I start to feel a little bit like I should probably start keeping track a little bit more intentionally of what happened during the course of my day. 
Um, now, I know what you're going to say. You know, this is why we have the examine. Um, <laughs> and, and my problem is that the examine is a difficult prayer for me to do habitually. Uh-huh. So to sort of get at that eventually, sort of like the desire for the d- desire for the examine, um, I want to get a little notebook, a little spiral that I can keep in my pocket. And then as I do things throughout the day, just jot them down. Yeah. Um, like major paper, activities. Huh? On real paper. Yeah, real paper. Um, and I think this will help till the soil a little bit to get me into the habit of being more recollected. Um, you know, writing down like woke up, had breakfast, prayed, um, showered, read, balanced my checkbook, whatever, whatever. <laughs> and then it's like 7 a.m. Yeah. Yeah, I so, like it. I'm going to do that. Just to be a little bit more intentional about the things you do. Yeah, but also like helping me maybe till the soil to pray the examine with more, you know, more information, more data. Um, and also just more like praying the examine is hard for me because I mm-hmm. usually get very impatient uh, when I'm sitting there at two in the afternoon. Yeah. Um, this way I'll have something to actually look at and be like, oh, these are all the things that I've done today. Yeah. No, that's cool. I like that a lot. Now, you said something interesting that I was going to bring up. But I didn't tell you about it. Ooh. Surprise me. But here's a funny story called You Told Me About It. <laughs> uh, what? <laughs> so you sent me this article the other day. On... I probably didn't read it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's fine. Everybody knows that we're really good at talking about things that we haven't read. Mm-hmm. Uh, so let's just go into the idea of this. The difference between studying... Um. Let me pull up the article so I know exactly for the headline. New study shows that students learn way more effectively from print textbooks than screens. Ooh, yes, 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 yes. Did you read it? I did not. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to, but I did not. Uh, but I have an immediate uh, uh, reaction to that because I much prefer reading on my iPad than mm-hmm. I do in, in actual books. Yeah, I'm not uh, sure why that is. Yeah, you know, and it's a funny thing too because I was um, I was thinking about this yesterday. We're allowed, so in our comps uh, exam, comprehensive exam, we're allowed to bring in a copy of a Bible and the documents of Vatican II, which, are, which can be, you know, annotated and highlighted and whatnot. I don't have print copies of those that I use for study. <laughs> hmm. And so I'm trying to figure out how to do that. Like, am I just going to get a copy and artificially like go in the night before and uh, mark them up or well, do, you, do you have digital copies that are marked up? Yeah. Well then print them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, that may be a, a better way to do it. Uh, yeah. Well, I'll have to get permission for that. I guess. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, but your your whole thing is that you and we've talked about this. I think sometimes is that you you just have a preference for reading things digitally than you do with yeah. books. Yeah. So I I think that I have changed my opinion about this. Um, I like you very much am a digital native, and I very much engage most of what I do through digital means. Um, and I used to be like you in that I would only read exclusively um, on digital stuff. Um. I've come around, though, to realizing that it's not an either or, for one. Um, yeah, yeah, that's it's fair. Both, it's both and. Um, because any way that I can ingest information, the better. Like, the more, the more ways that's available to me, the better. Because I'm just not disciplined to always be reading on any one medium. Uh-huh. So when I'm walking to school, audiobooks, 100%. Um, you know, when I'm just cleaning my room, podcasts, 100%. Um, when I need to read an article that was online, well, on my iPad, but then I started to realize like there are books that I want to read that I really want to annotate, um, in, in a way that's, that's freer than just the restrictions of the, the iBook or the Kindle book. Um, and I can't get a, like a PDF copy of it. And so I'm like, man, you know, just getting the book is so much easier. Like, it's just yeah. so much easier to grab it and get a, p- a pencil and just yeah. write in the margins and circle things. Um, so I'm like, you know, there are some books that I just feel like it's just a lot easier to do that. So I'm just trying to, I'm trying to have like a multiplicity of 
ways of engaging information. Otherwise, like I'm just not going to read as much. Yeah, uh, that is an interesting distinction between the ebook versus the PDF because you're totally right. Kindle and iBooks are difficult to annotate. Like yeah, you can highlight. Terrible. Okay, fine. Uh, you can't write. But on a, yeah, on a PDF, on PDF Expert, we can just highlight, annotate, do whatever you want. Um, and it's so much easier. And I find, and that's what I, I guess, I guess I should clarify. That's what I very much prefer mm -hmm. is being able to modify my PDFs. Right, right. Uh, I, yeah, Kindle books, I'll agree with you there. Um, because the annotation especially is just for textbooks not as good because you can resell textbooks, even though I never do. Theoretically, right. you can resell your textbooks. Sure. Whereas you're sure. stuck with those Kindle books for the rest of eternity. Mm -hmm. I will say, I mean, another reason for me that, uh, and it's also the reason that I just bought this Jesus of Nazareth book hard copy. Um, it's sitting right here next to me. Um, there is there are many things to be said about this, but I I would just emphasize one aspect and that is that i spend all of my time on my ipad like i spend yeah. so much time on my ipad that i just I need, need a break, break from it yeah i just need a break and i want to yeah. sit down in my you know in my couch and read mm -hmm. so yeah you know that goes it. back to what we were saying with the minimalism thing you know it's it's a it has to become a disciplined a disciplined habit mm -hmm. and if you're just abandoning uh one aspect of this then you're you're becoming lopsided so yeah that's sure that's good for me to keep in mind you know i'm i tend to want to just abandon print books because i don't like Dude, them but no you're if right. i were you if i mean again if i were your spiritual director i would maybe <laughs> encourage you to uh why don't you buy this book hard copy and read it with me yeah maybe i'll do that i mean even just as simple as like i'm holding it in my hands right now and i can jump between sections without needing to like you know command f the, the the thing you know like i yeah. can i can jump to the table of contents very simply and i don't know i think there's something you said there there's a whole conversation around like we are both physical and you know spiritual beings uh -huh. that i don't want to get into but it's like the tactile nature of the book i think is important to just at least name that yeah kind of like you were saying last week about the importance of having a, like a physical way in which i engage with my hands the mm -hmm. world mm -hmm. um I don't exactly remember what you were saying in connection to. Well, I don't remember what we were talking about last week about that. Do you remember? Uh, well, just having that physical outlet helps you to have a better, a better understanding of yourself and how you relate to the world. So oh, sure. Yeah. Less, I think, less likely to overindulge in, you know, I don't know, whatever it is. If you mm -hmm. have a regular. And it might not even be a creative outlet, but just a physical outlet. Yeah. Outlet. Yeah. So there's an analogy there with books that I think that there's a physical nature to it that's important. Yeah. Now I will say I do I do buy into that a hundred percent when it comes to liturgical books. Oh yeah? Like it is a it will be a sad day in hell. When, <laughs> is that the right word phrase? No, it'll be a cold day in hell. Cold day in hell. <laughs> <laughs> uh, when we start using iPads and digital books at liturgy, yeah, like a, a, a digital missile, I think will be a terrible addition because, pr for me at least, precisely because I don't enjoy books made of paper, uh, <laughs> having to use them keeps me in that different space that you're just talking about. Yeah, 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 yeah. The whole idea of I don't like books made out of paper it just sounds like a ridiculous overgeneralization. Yeah, okay, oh, it is. That's, but that's why I love to say it. <laughs> it you sound as bad as the guys who refuse to open books on their iPads because that's uh, true. Yeah, they only read books on paper. <laughs> yeah, well, and that, I mean, yeah, David, and that's just what you called me out on, and I am agreeing with you. <laughs> you have become that which you swore to destroy. Yeah, that's <laughs> <laughs> yeah so I'm going to change that. Oh, good. Well, anyway, so it's going to be a good Lent, and we're going to have a great time and yeah, learn stuff cool. and grow. Very cool. Um, So here's something else that I want to surprise you with. Okay, good, because I have something I want to surprise you with. Oh, great. Do you want to go first or you want me to? I want you to. All right. This might be a big topic. Oh, good. Is yours a big topic? 
Uh, yeah, mine is a huge topic. Okay, okay, I'll go first. So I was in canon law class the other day. Mm-hmm. And I thought you were going to say I was in Canada. <laughs> no, <laughs> I heard no. I was in Canada. Canon law. <laughs> uh, and we got to talking about the process of submitting your request for faculties. Okay, can you and, give us a background on what that is? Because not everyone might not know what you're okay, talking about. Okay, so priests and deacons cannot function publicly without permission from the bishop in a particular any, diocese. Of, yeah, of a particular diocese. So I have permission to function as a deacon in the Diocese of Oakland presently. Okay. If I were to go to the diocese, Archdiocese of San Francisco, which is just across the bay, I'd have to go to the chancery and request permission from the bishop. Okay. Okay. And you have to do this all over, no matter where you go. You only have mm-hmm. permission to do things. Okay, fine. Seems reasonable. Nope. Seems reasonable. Yes, very reasonable. Um, people want to be sure that you're a legitimate priest or deacon and you're in good standing. Great. Similar to that, we have to do, and I need to be very careful here because I'm not knocking the practice of doing these virtus training or protecting God's children, or whatever it is, keeping safe, uh, training to keep safe boundaries between adults and children. Safe environment. Yeah, safe environment. We need a lot more of that, to be sure. Uh-huh. But the thing that really grinds my gears <laughs> is the fact that not only do does each diocese, each individual diocese have their own version, but none of them talk to each other like none of them you can't be accredited for the state of california you're accredited for the diocese of oakland hmm now huh okay. and so if it's, again if i go over the bay i have to do the entire training course for safe environment for san francisco but doesn't your letter of good standing from your home province count well so that's these are different these are different it's the same kind in my mind and what i'm getting at here in a second these are the same type of a practice that if I was going to get faculties in San Francisco, I, would, I don't have to do safe environment for that. Okay. If I'm going to work with children, then I definitely do. Okay. Or if I'm going to do any extended ministry, I definitely do. So there's just no national program for safe environment. Yes. Yes. Or for, and this is my, my question to you. Basically, I'm thinking about a cleric registry act. <laughs> <laughs> this didn't work out very well for the Avengers. It didn't. <laughs> it didn't. Uh, which is why I thought it'd be kind of fun to talk about. Because I think we do, you know, almost every corporation, major corporation, has, well, corporation-wide, corporate-wide accreditations and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, identification. Right. Like, why don't we have clergy ID cards? For the yeah, for the yeah. for the U- United States, uh, what do they call it? Not assistancy conference. Right, right. I think that um, I think it's a great idea. It's an idea that I've had myself, um, and I think other people have had that idea. And I've seen, I've seen it. I think actually exist in some countries, um, something like this, uh, where there is a registry like that, um, or at least I've read articles about having, especially with in the wake of all this sex abuse stuff. Yeah, of, yeah. Of having like a an app like making an app for that um, where there's clearly like, this is a man in good standing and you can just update all that. I I think part of the problem is that we still live in a time in the church where faxes are still a thing, for example. (laughs) Um, Like we're always behind the curve when it comes to technology. Right. Right. So I think that's, that's part of it. Um, Now maybe. Is that an excuse though? Like, can we afford to be behind the curve in that? Well, maybe this is more to the point though. More, More to the problem is that, can can other bishops decide for other bishops? Right. And I think that's that's probably why this wouldn't work, is because then you have a super bishop who decides and binds the hands of other bishops. Yeah, but we have that, the president of the conference. But the pre- but the conferences don't have any canonical jurisdiction. Well In canon law, I don't think they're actually represented in canon law. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I just, I don't see that as meaning that we can't do that. That just, there's no, 
there's no oversight to do that. So, so I'll, I'll give you an example. So let's say you have a very, very like arch conservative bishop that really dislikes Jesuits, let's say, and then says for some reason that no Jesuits can have faculties in his diocese. That'd be crazy, right? And that would be really unfair. And hopefully that doesn't actually happen. But say that did happen. And then, yeah. then no Jesuit is allowed to have faculties in his diocese. But if there is a, a super bishop at the conference level who can then trump that decision by saying that at the conference level, you do have faculties, then now the authority of the local ordinary has been overtaken by a different bishop. And I think that's where you have a conflict now of who who has the authority to legislate yeah. on a bishop. So I'm not I was not assuming that those that particular thing that you just described is part of this system. So like I'm still all for having to request because we still function at the leisure of the bishop, all priests and deacons. Just period. Oh so like and if so you still have to go and request faculties. I'm looking at a way to streamline that process to say, look, I've got my ID card. So you know that I'm in good standing, but I'm still requesting permission because this is your diocese. Oh, I see. So another way of looking at that would be like local ordinaries have veto power. <laughs> Can well, still like say, they do already like that. That part right. doesn't change. Right, right. But just everything else is streamlined into an ID card that, you know, you this is a man who's done. Uh, safe environment. This is a man who is in good standing with his home province or his home diocese. Um, and you can just see the card and yeah. know that. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's entirely reasonable. Now you should do that. Is it because it, because it's reasonable? Do you think it'll never happen? <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I mean, all... like, honestly, what, what do you think is holding us back from doing something like that? Because it does seem obvious. Uh huh. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think there might, maybe, maybe, maybe issues of like, I'm just trying, I'm just spitballing here, man. I don't know. I think, I think one of the things maybe is like, what if all that data, you know, then there's security problems of like breach of data. Um, so it's not just compiling a spreadsheet, you know, that then you have on your phone. It's, you have to have secure networks. You have to have secure databases, right. you know, yeah. for all that because you have, it's you're you're okay. on, operating on the level of like government issued yeah. IDs. Yeah. And and is the church in a position <laughs> like financially also an expertise to be able to do something on that level? I don't know. Maybe maybe. Maybe. <laughs> um maybe it's not a priority. Like your discomfort for having to do safe environment twice is that worth <laughs> considering? Well, you know? okay, yeah. I mean, and again, like I like I said, we could all we could all handle doing more safe environment training. Mm -hmm. um, as we've seen in the church these past few decades, <laughs> we need more of that. Mm -hmm. But that's not really what I'm, what I'm upset with. Like, it's just seems like bad practice, bad business mm -hmm. to have none of these dioceses talking to each other. Mm -hmm. And I'm not trying to, to diminish the, autonomy of the local ordinary like that's that remains like this is his diocese and he does what he wants um but yeah i just think we could we could play a little bit nicer with each other yeah and also facilitate those those details of like safe environment and good standing yeah i think it would only help you know if we did have a common language that we were using for safe environment like how right. how could that not be a good thing yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, yeah, I think that's good. And I, it's, it's actually not that controversial, I don't think. It's just, it's just a matter of like logistical. Like I yeah. don't know, other than logistics, what gets in the way of this sort of, sort of thing. I mean, even yeah. in all the things that I said, um, like you're, you're pointing out, it has nothing to do with authority and has more to do with just the practicality of documentation. Right. Um, yeah, I'm all for it. I'm all for it. You know, I, I had... I've had this con canonical question in the back of my mind for a couple of years now, and I get different answers depending on which canon lawyers I talk to. Um, yeah. And it has to do with the faculties of hearing confessions in airports. Mm. Uh, and I hear different things from different people. Um, and it's kind of one of, like, that's a good pa pa pastoral, like, implication for 
questions about faculties and questions about jurisdiction across dioceses and good standing. It's like, okay, if I'm in an airport and I'm wearing my clerics and if someone knows I'm a priest and asks for confession, can I hear their confession? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Some people say no. Yeah. Well, that'll be a, I'll be sure to raise that. It'll probably come up next week when we talk about Eucharist, but this class is specifically on canon law of the sacraments. So that's yeah, exactly the you, kind of thing that's, that we're going to be yeah. talking about. I'm going to leave, uh, hopefully you can report back to us in our next episode about that. Ask that question because I've asked two different canon lawyers and I got two different answers. Yeah. One said you cannot and another said that you can. Yeah. I mean, I just have a gut reaction against telling somebody no when they're coming to me for confession. Yeah. I share that. I share that. Like how, how can you, in good conscience, do that? Well, okay, so here here's the reason given. The reason given is because the sacrament of reconciliation is the only sacrament that's bound by jurisdiction. So unlike the rest of the sacraments, it's only the sacrament of reconciliation that's done in under the authority of the of the local ordinary. Uh-huh. It's tied geographically to the authority of the local ordinary. And so if that's the case, then you can only absolve sins if you have faculties from the local ordinary. Yeah. Do you think this is because at a certain time, there weren't there were certain priests that weren't allowed to hear confession. Well, I think still to this day, there are certain priests that are not allowed to hear confession. Really, that's still a thing. I mean, there are priests that are not allowed to function as priests. Well, sure, okay, that's not what I meant, though. What did you mean? Like functioning priests that were not given faculties for confession. Oh, but interesting. Can celebrate liturgy, huh? Mass. Oh, I don't know of any. Well, like back in the day when certain priests weren't allowed to preach. Right, right. Yeah. So you took a theology of priesthood class. I did not. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Anyway. No, this is good. I'm glad you brought this up. This is good. So when you go to your canon law of sacraments class next week, I I would love if you could ask this question. Yeah. You know, and I guess just to wrap up this part, it's just that I'm, it's fascinating to me that we are, not only are we so behind technologically, which is for, both for good and for bad. Like, I'll give that to you. But that we're, we kind of rejoice in it sometimes. Right. And then criticize it other times. Hmm. Uh, so. Yeah, no, that's fair. That's fair. I would love to see a very up-to-date, sleek, and digitally, like, fluent, or digitally at least, at the very least, if not fluent, at least digitally conversant, yeah. uh, you know, church in the United States yeah. for us to be able to do that. Yeah, and I mean, it's like us in Regency. If we didn't know how to talk to teenagers, then here's a funny story called we wouldn't be able to talk to teenagers. <laughs> right, right. And you, you gotta need to, to have that. Yeah, we weren't fluent in teen speak, mm-hmm. um, but we could engage. Sure. And they sure. and they knew the the teachers that couldn't. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Anyway, that was good. Very good. I'll hop off. Um, hop off. Pop off my soapbox. Well, we'll, re- we'll return to that soapbox next time. Well, good. So what's next? Uh, you had something. Yeah, I'm not sure how to... I don't know if we have time to bring it up. <laughs> or if we should go into our into our book review. Because we and I were going to talk about a book today. We were going to talk about a book. I I don't know. I'll leave it up to you. Why don't we talk about the book? Because <laughs> I, think, I think there's something that uh, we can say about the book that we'll then bring up. The mm. thing that I wanted to say. Okay. So so you and I were going to review this book, The Coddling of the American Mind. Yep. Uh, and we recommended it last time um, or two times ago, which is great. Um, and I think you and I decided off the air to just spread it out a little bit over the next couple of episodes instead mm-hmm. of doing it all in one take. Because as was mentioned before, we both are not great at reading extensively <laughs> for a very long yeah. period of time. Um, so the book is in four parts. Mm-hmm. And... I thought it might be good at least to do part one today and then maybe do the next two parts for the next episode. Um, how's that? How does that sound to you? It's great. Did you actually read part one? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Good. Good. So uh, just broad strokes. Can you just tell us what this book is about and then maybe what the first part is about? So the, it's called The Coddling of the, the American Mind, and it is basically looking at untruths of our culture that are being... Um, told as well truth and just the way that things are Mm -hmm. and they're looking at weird ways in which that manifests itself 
uh, I mentioned before that it, one of the, the things that that they're that they're talking about is that uh, this has been uh, hyper focused. I don't know if that's the best way to say it, but um, this is being shown to be most true with people born 1995 and after. Right, right. So they're considering I-Gen. that to be yeah the iGen. This they are not millennials. They are not. Um, yeah z z or whatever um right these are people who are in college yeah like, they're now. college students right now yeah exactly uh and basically their th- the three untruths are as described in the book the untruth of fragility what doesn't kill you makes you weaker <laughs> the untruth of emotional reasoning always trust your feelings and the untruth of us versus them Life is a battle between good people and evil people. Right, right. Uh, and so the the first part treats these three untruths generally and yeah. t- talks about them. Um, yeah. And then later on, he starts talking about implications of all this stuff. Right. Um, yeah. So I think um, maybe just one thing that I was noticing in the book that is important to probably say is why they wrote this book. I think part of it is that they were noticing that there were on college campuses, an obsession with safe spaces and an obsession with, you know, putting trigger warnings on books. Um, and one one line in the introduction that I thought was really important is that uh, one of the guys who authored this book was working at a university and he started to notice that over time, the people who used to be very concerned about censorship used to be the faculty mm-hmm. and the people who are most concerned with free speech used to be students. But that seems to have flip-flopped mm. and students seem to be more concerned about censorship and less concerned about freedom of speech. And it had, this, this has given rise to a lot of the protests about speakers coming to university campuses or things that are allowed to be included in the curriculum right, um, right. that communicate certain ideas. And so the censorship even coming from students themselves. Um, and so that was sort of the impetus for this examination of why this is happening. Um, yeah, and this like they the, started to notice that people were saying that these things, no longer did they just disagree with them, but that they were in some way causing physical harm. Right. Which right. meant that so, they had to start the protests and and have to have these safe spaces. Right. So the there's an issue of safetyism, right? That is one of the things that they talked about is that, you know, when when discourse of ideas and the interchange of positions and different points of view mm-hmm. becomes a threat to a person rather than just a proposition. Yeah. Um and so when I read something in my literature class that I find offensive not that I disagree with it, but I just find it offensive and personally harmful, then I demand that my faculty member, you know, put a trigger warning on the book or not teach it because it's harmful to people who have Mm -hmm. uh, a particular life experience or sensitivity. Um, So yeah, so that's sort of of the general background. I'm interested in talking to you, Jonathan, about was there any one of the three untruths that you found particularly resonant with your own experience or with what, like as you were reading the first part? Yeah, so I've got a, and I just tested this last night, actually. I've got this funny story. So I don't know if you know the whole, my whole history with avocados. <laughs> <laughs> you are allergic? Question mark? Yeah. So when I was a kid, I was a very picky eater. Uh, and uh, avocados were one of the things, most green things, I think, I was skeptical of. Mm-hmm. Um, but I stayed away. Wouldn't touch them. And then I don't know how old I was, maybe 12 or 13. I actually tried it (laughs) and realized that it's freaking delicious. Yeah. Uh, But then after, you know, however long of enjoying guacamole and avocado, this avocado, that I started to notice that my mouth would start to like to tingle and kind of swell. And I would feel intense nausea. Mm. (laughs) I was like, oh, this is not good. I think I am allergic to avocados. And so since then, I've... And I just assumed that, oh, well, me being picky with that was just my body's way of saying, hey, don't eat that because you're allergic. Mm -hmm. But now after reading this book, so this, uh, this first untruth of what doesn't kill you makes you weaker... And their specific example of the peanut allergy craze. 
Oh, yeah, we're yeah, actually yeah. promoting peanut allergy by removing this from children's diets. Can you can you say more about that really quick? And con- you're going to connect it to your avocado thing. Yeah, but like yeah. what what is happening? So they so in the night, you know, when we were kids, we probably knew a couple of kids here and there that were allergic to peanuts. Uh huh. You know, just okay. Don't bring peanuts to school, or no, don't bring. Uh, I don't know. I don't even know if they told us not to, not to bring things. They just said mm-hmm. he's allergic. Uh, don't do peanut stuff around him. Okay. Right, right. And that was like one kid in the entire class. Mm-hmm. These days, they're telling people do not bring peanut or anything that may have touched peanuts to school. You know, we've, we're to a point where they don't offer peanuts in airplanes. We don't. And so it's becoming kind of a, a craze that we're, mm-hmm. that we're removing peanuts because of the threat of those who may be allergic. And what they're finding, according to this book, is that doing tests on children, most people show some signs of an allergy to peanuts. So they split two groups up. They gave one, they made one group um, remove peanuts from their diets altogether. And then one, they slowly introduced or slowly gave them peanuts throughout their childhood. Mm-hmm. And the statistics apparently showed that the ones that were given no peanut developed um, way more of a of a, a harsh allergy mm-hmm. to those in the other group who even those that showed the initial signs of an allergy kind of developed an immunity to it. Oh, okay, okay. Um, so that they were less likely to be severely allergic to peanuts. Right, right. Because they had been exposed to it. Mm-hmm. And so, by not exposing people to this, they're not. We're, we are developing more children are developing this this severe peanut allergy. Like right. I used so to, seems- I used to run around barefoot, um, in my neighborhood out in the woods, uh, you know, eating stuff off the ground all the time. <laughs> gross. Uh, yeah, it's gross. <laughs> but that's how you build your immunities as a child, and that's sure, how you sure. That's how you become a healthy, healthy adult is by having. So you're saying. Antibodies. So you're saying. You you not eating avocados as a child probably yeah. created an allergy for you? I think so, because I ate a little bit of guac. I made some really delicious Mexican food last night, mm. um, and people tend to like guac with their Mexican food. So mm-hmm. I made some and figured, what the heck, I'll see what happens. Um, and I did notice a little bit, but it was not as bad as I remember. Hmm. And so I'm wondering if this has become one of these untruths that that I've been told. Now, hmm. I should say, if you're severely allergic to something <laughs> and you like literally carry around an EpiPen, I do not recommend just saying, oh, I don't know if this is still a thing. Let me eat peanuts or whatever. Like, <laughs> yeah, no, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, this, this was never that severe of an allergy for me. Sure, uh, sure. So, yeah, I'm, it's, it makes me wonder... What else in my life have I just convinced myself that I am allergic to huh. uh, that may not be the case? Right. So it seems like in the book, though, the, the focus is more social yeah. than personal, right? Yeah. Like- so that was a personal story for me. And that, so the, I think if I were to apply this to the, the things of their book, would be things like, oh, well, I'm going to tell my entire large community to do no avocado anywhere near me right and just to like mandate that that is now a rule uh-huh. for these you know 80 some odd jesuits that nobody's allowed to enjoy avocado because because i'm allergic it might have an encounter. right but then the and then and then the the, the paradoxical consequence is that people start developing allergies right. to something that was n- removed from right. their diet right and so like the peanut allergy example is one that sort of proves that there's uh, in the removal of the thing, it starts to cultivate the allergy. And I guess the reason this relates not just physically, but also to the education system is that there is this belief in the, uh, sort of the opposed to the Nietzschean view that what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Right. There's the view of what doesn't kill you makes you weaker. So right. if something comes into my life and it doesn't kill me, it it affects me and it hurts me 
and is a threat to me. So I'd rather it not enter into my life at all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I remove it. But then there's the paradoxical consequence of then, you know, growing growing intolerant <laughs> of right, right. Uh, of thing of those things. So um this plays out in the education system because I think what ends up happening is that people experience a threat because they are encountering a position or something that's foreign to the way that they already see the world and they feel like it will harm them and so they reject it. But then by rejecting it, then they become and they start to experience intolerance towards the thing. Um, almost hate for the thing yeah. <laughs> and a desire yeah. to eradicate the thing uh, because they feel threatened by it. Right. Um, yeah. And so like there, there's this notion of anti-fragility, I guess that they're talking about is that like you can be fragile, something can be fragile and like a glass is fragile or you can be resilient, which is something that has immunity. Um, but then there is something a little bit more uh, interesting, nuanced is that there's something called anti-fragility where in order for the thing to grow stronger, it has to be exposed to weakness. <laughs> so, right, right. you know, like the human body is the example that they give, is that for the body to become stronger, it has to be broken down, Yeah. Um, you know, through physical exercise. And so our minds are the same way, our affect is the same way, our physical body is the same way, that we're anti-fragile, is that we, we need a fragility experience in order for us to grow in strength. Um, yeah. But by removing those things that can weaken us, we never gain strength. All we gain is intolerance. Right. Which makes sense the way that when you look at the progression of these untruths, um, I'm going to jump over to number three, because I think that was one that stood out to me as well, that there are only two types of people in the world, good versus evil, good people and bad people. Right. Because when you play this game of all, if everything, if anything offends me in any way, that I have to mark it as unsafe, physically unsafe, then yeah, you are naturally going to kind of put yourself into us and us versus them mentality. Right. And I right. see, I think we see this across the board in, in society these days. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then anything coming from the other side is an, is an aggressive yeah. move. Yeah. Towards it me. doesn't matter if I even agree with that because it's coming from somebody from an aggressor. That means I have to disagree with it. Yeah. So you gave a good personal example of avocados. I want to give an example from my own life too. Uh, I think, so as I was reading this first part, I felt a little bit implicated and I kind of like I was reading, uh, looking into a mirror a little bit because I Mm. think that I'm also, I've also been influenced by this, uh, the first untruth of fragility. Um, when When I first, I don't know if you have any experience of this, but when I first joined the, uh, formation for priesthood, I found myself in a position where I was afraid of uh, sort of like non-traditional theological positions. Mm. Um, I was raised in a very traditional context theologically. And so for me, I had a fear of other positions, of Uh other ways of describing the faith or other ways of explaining the faith. And I often felt threatened uh, that like my my own sense of security or integrity um, would crumble if I was exposed to a heterodox position or a different way of explaining something that wasn't, you know, commensurate with the way that I saw things. Um, And I've had to get over that some, but I think the getting over it, the best way of doing so is just opening my mind to where I can speak with people who I disagree with Mm -hmm. and learn from them and then also disagree with them and say, this is why, you know, like there's the maturation process of learning how to have religious argument rather than just going to my silo of, well, that's not the truth and yep. I'm afraid of you because you don't have the truth. Yep, um, echo chambers. Yeah, and I felt like within myself there was a desire when I was younger to go into this echo chamber or this silo mentality of like, I have the truth of the faith and anyone who dissents from that is a threat to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and also like I felt weak, like I felt fragile mm-hmm. um, if I was speaking to somebody and I thought my whole world will crumble if they influence me too much. So I need a safe space and so I would flee to you know, sort of like very like traditionally orthodox Catholic, you know, you know, subcultures of, Uh uh you know, the extraordinary form or whatever it is and finding that as like a, a support structure because it felt safe. Yeah. There was, no one was going to enter here that was a heretics, certainly. (laughs) Um, 
So I don't know. I don't know if you've experienced that, but I notice that a lot now, especially on Catholic Twitter, that there is something about like, like you pointing to person X, like if you don't follow this tenet or that tenet, or if you don't explain it this way, you're my enemy. It's not just, we need to talk about this. There's a, the silo mentality because there's a fear of engaging different positions. Some Mm -hmm. are right, some are wrong, but engaging them through religious argumentation. Yeah. It's an interesting, it's an interesting balance because I think it's a natural, well, it's certainly a natural tendency, but I also think on a certain level, it's a healthy tendency to want to go to what's comfortable to be supported by those that you trust. The, I think the problem arises when you start to, well, when you start to make this us versus them mentality. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. When you start to say, I can no longer feel safe or feel comfort in those that I may ideologically disagree with. Yeah. Oh, sure. Sure. Um, yeah. That's an interesting, that's an interesting point. Um, Cause in our life as, I mean, as, as members of the clergy and as, as very devote, devoted, devoted Catholics, like we are often faced with the, the tensions, the ideological tensions in the church. Um, yeah. You know, I had a really good moment as a novice where I was able to overcome this a little bit. Um, the sort of the fear of, um, you know, the fear of being deceived or being formed incorrectly or the fear of an opposing point of view. I overcame it a little bit in the novitiate because I had a moment where I was uh, ministering at a place where everyone is pretty traditionally minded, um, but I still represented what was stereotypically a more progressive religious order, mm-hmm. um, which is not exactly true, but it was sort of in the stereotype. Yeah. Uh, but I found myself at some point listening to people there uh, critiquing Jesuits. And I found myself getting very defensive because, <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. Because I started finding myself saying like, wait a minute, politics and ideology aside, you're talking about my brothers. You're talking mm-hmm. about my family. And like, there is no us versus them in terms of family, you know? And so I found myself there being able to say like the, the differences in position don't need to be differences in grouping, um, you know, where, yeah. yeah, I disagree with you on stuff. I disagree with all of our friends on stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that doesn't mean that then there's a division between us. Right. Yeah. And, you know, it, that's one of the basic fundamental things of Christianity. Jesus himself told us that we were going to suffer in his name. Mm-hmm. We're going to be attacked. We're going to be uh tried they're going to try to destroy us and if we start doing that to each other then we're just making that their job easier yeah 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 i do find that a lot of time like i mean in recent news and everything with the church like there's something to be said about uh the way that catholics treat other catholics is also something to look at yeah. um how how we react to other catholics in this whole situation yeah there's just a lot of tearing down of other members of the church you know mm-hmm. yep Almost as if this ancient institution that's lasted for 2,000 years isn't big enough for more than one ideology. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Which is and just kind a, of silly. Yeah, and just to bring it maybe full circle, is I, this is I thought about this a lot with the first untruth of the untruth of fragility, even though they don't mm-hmm. talk about the church. Right. Just because I found in myself that in my own experience of formation, needing to kind of open my eyes a little bit to how defensive I am about... Yeah what I think to be true or what I know to be true or, you know, and getting very like concerned about protecting my integrity or protecting my security um, in the face of different points of view. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I think one of the reasons why I like reading books like this is because is because they're, you know, these are sciencey books and <laughs> modern you know, uh, commentaries on society. Yeah. But I think they do really speak to the heart of religious truth as well. Yeah. Um, and I love when modern scientists do that unknowingly. Mm. Um, and specifically with the second, with the second untruth, um, emotional reasonings always trust your feelings. They're right, trying to untruth, right? Yeah, yeah. 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 They're trying to argue that just because you're, feeling happy like the 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 emotion of happiness doesn't match up with the this idea of pleasure 
Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so when they're going in talking about cognitive behavioral therapy, um, I just find it amazing that they're trying to, they're basically doing an Ignatian examine. Right. Uh, they're trying to identify the things that, to use our language, the things that um, spark desolation, the things that might bring desolation. Right. Because it's, it's part and parcel of our spirituality that you can't always just go off of your emotions. Right. right? Your emotions are data. That's data. Right. But that data needs to be sifted through, you know, discernment and rational deliberation and to see, wait a minute, am I being influenced here by the evil spirit or the Holy Spirit? Like, what am I being influenced by? Yeah. Um, Whereas the untruth is that you see a lot of people in college now or, you know, maybe even entering the workplace that are taught that if they feel a thing, that's the truth of their circumstance. And that's all they can expect, uh, expect to to manifest is yeah. all that they all that they have felt and there's no changing that. Yeah, one of their examples in the book was um letting your feelings guide your interpretation of reality. So, mm. I feel depressed, therefore my marriage is not working out. Hmm. Uh like and that's a common thing for us, I think, because we live you know, kind of lonely lives and we get depressed and therefore we think, well, maybe this isn't our vocation. Hmm. So if we're just trusting our feelings there, that can lead us to a really, really bad place. Yeah, that's a really good way of looking at it. Yeah, because I've felt that, you know? Yeah. I have felt whenever I'm sad <laughs> or lonely, like I'm, I jump to a conclusion. Yep. But that's an untruth, right? That right. always trust your feelings. It's like, mm, no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm not suspicious of my feelings, but I do find that they need to be examined, right? They need to be yep. tried. Yep, test the spirits, as St. Paul mm. said. I think that's St. James. <laughs> Is that in James? <laughs> I think it might be in James. I'm, mm. I stand to be corrected, but I think it's in James. Yeah. Um, I'll figure that out. I'll get back to you. No. Yeah, so that's good. So these are the three untruths, and I think it's the first part of the book that lays a foundation for the rest. Uh-huh. Um, we can return. I, I haven't read the rest of the book yet. Um So I'm looking forward to the rest of it. But is there anything else in this first part that you wanted to highlight before we go? Um no, I think that's a good base level for now. I, you know, I suspect we will come back to some of these untruths as we as we talk about the rest of the book. Cool, cool, cool. Um, <laughs> toy. <laughs> <laughs> good. All right. Well, why don't we end it there, and then um, we can come back to part two and maybe part three next time. And we're also going to be reading this Jesus of Nazareth book. So, yeah, it's a lot. We got See plenty to be looking at. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Cool, man. All right. We'll talk later. All right, bro. Cheers. Peace.